Well, most of you know me, uh, but for those of you who don't, my name is Art Delgado, and I am the uh, coordinator of senior care and visitation, and, and also the coordinator of equipping and mobilizing. And it's my privilege to share uh, this morning with you all. And so I wanted to start with a, uh, a question, and that is uh, whether, um, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here, um, whether you've ever been unfriended or unfollowed on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, um, if so, then maybe it was over something trivial, um, like maybe they didn't appreciate your food takes, or uh, maybe they didn't like seeing so many pictures of your dog or your cat uh, or your pet turtle, uh, grease lightning. Um, sometimes, however, the reasons people unfollow are more substantial. You know, maybe it's a, a current event that you feel really passionate about, and so you post something either in support or against, and you start seeing your, your follower count go down. Um, um, but maybe if you know these people in real life, maybe they stop talking to you. Um, and that can be really hurtful. And so, unfortunately, this kind of behavior can creep into the church. Uh, one person uh, voices an opinion, maybe, that others disagree with uh, or find offensive. So we label them and we cut off communication. Or, in other cases, uh, people disagree with a non-essential thing in the church. You know, maybe it's the decor, or maybe it's, uh, you know, the style of music. And rather than say anything, they just go down the street to the next church, one that fits their, their preferences. Uh, and so in A.D. 57, Paul addressed a situation in Rome that was similar to what we see happening in some churches today. And he rebuked, corrected, and encouraged the church to stop passing judgment and to judge rightly following the example of Christ. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, and while you're finding it, I'll provide some historical context. So it is A.D. 49, and even though the church in Rome began with Jewish converts who returned from Pentecost in Jerusalem, it was changing rapidly. The Christian movement was quickly spreading into Gentile populations, and an influx of Gentiles to the church uh, led to numerous first-century debates about whether the Gentiles were obligated to keep the Mosaic Law. And we can see a prime example of that in Acts chapter 15. But apparently, uh, the debates in Rome became so heated that Emperor Claudius, out of exasperation with squabbles among the Jews about Crestus, who most people believe refers to Christ, most commentators, uh, he issued an edict that required all Jews to leave Rome. And so Jewish Christians like Priscilla and Aquila, uh, you can see them in Acts 18, they would have been included. And so overnight, the church in Rome became virtually 100% Gentile. Now by the time Paul wrote this epistle in AD 57, Jews and Jewish Christians had been allowed back into Rome, but they came back to a church dominated by the Gentiles, people who didn't share their convictions about kosher food, drink, and special days. And as a result, conflict ensued between those Paul called the strong in faith who were primarily Gentile, though some, like Paul, were Jews, and the mostly Jewish Christians whom Paul called the weak in faith. And so Paul wrote from Corinth to address what some translations call differences of opinion or disputed matters, and we'll see that in verse 14.1 in, in a second here. Now, I want to note that these conflicts weren't over gospel issues, such as the full deity and humanity of Christ, but matters of conscience, or what we might call scruples. The Jewish Christians in Rome had grown up eating only kosher meat, and they would not drink any uh, wine that might have been offered as a libation to the gods. Um, they also observed the Sabbath and other holy days, and their consciences wouldn't just allow them to stop doing these things. Um, 
and it's important to note here that these were not the Judaizers uh, nor the ascetics, um, both of whom Paul rebuked in his other letters. But these were believers in Jesus who recognized that salvation came through faith in him alone. And yet their conscience wouldn't allow them to enjoy the same liberties uh, with regard to food and drink that the Gentiles did. In fact, if they had done so, uh, their consciences would have been uh, wounded. It would have been condemning them. Um, it would have affected their relationship with the Lord. Now, the strong in faith, they accepted the teaching that Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark seven nineteen, That an idol was nothing. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 7. And that one could esteem one day as better than the other or treat them all alike. Romans 14, 5. And so they made full use of these liberties, even though their Jewish brothers and sisters could not do so in good conscience. And so what was the result of this conflict? Well, let's pick up the reading in Romans 14.1, going on through verse 4. This is Paul speaking. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so we see that there were two opposite but equally harmful positions being taken here. Uh, the strong were despising the weak um, and scorning them, maybe thinking, uh, you know, I got this meat on sale at the meat market and it's perfectly good and they wouldn't eat with me because they didn't know how it was prepared. You know, I, I can't even take them seriously. But the weak in faith were passing judgment, which has the implication that they were rejecting the Gentiles with contempt. Maybe thinking, wow, these guys don't even question where their, their food and drink came from. They don't even observe the Sabbath, you know. And so you have these... Uh, these things go, these thoughts going on in their minds. And when one party scorns or despises the other, and the other party passes unfavorable judgment or condemnation, then hurt, factions, and divisions will occur, all of which are antithetical to the cause of Christ. And so what does Paul say in light of all of this? Let's go to verse 13, and we'll see how the apostle uses some wordplay to get his point across. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, most translations in this verse, they use a word like decide or make up your mind, uh, which is perfectly good, solid English. But translating it this way also softens the impact of what Paul is trying to say in the Greek. He actually uses the same Greek verb for passing judgment that he does for making decision. Uh, decisions, which is the word crino. And so we might paraphrase Paul in this way as one commentator writes. He says, instead of burning energy in judging how others should live, we should judge how we can help them live well. Let me say that again. Instead of burning energy in judging how others should live, we should judge how we can help them live well. In other words, if we're going to judge, and let's face it, we will, let us judge rightly deciding that we will never cause a brother or sister to stumble and fall. Now Paul goes on to clarify what he's talking about in verse 14, so let's look there. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, I won't spend much time here because I do want to look at the first seven verses of chapter 15, but I do want to note a couple of things. When Paul says that something is not a sin, but it is wrong or unclean, whose, uh, whose conscience is sensitive in that area, then they should not do that thing. Why? Well, because in verse 23, he says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, don't sin against your conscience. And if something bothers a brother or sister, uh, even though it's technically not a sin, don't wound their conscience by doing it in front of them or by pressuring them to go along with you or the group. Um, instead, we should bear with them, helping them carry that load until they grow in their understanding of Christian freedom. Just as Paul said when he said, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that. What he's saying is we want to help uh, those whose scruples or whose conscience is sensitive to get to that place of maturity and, and, and security in Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul is referring to in chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And let's go there now. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings or scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now when Paul says here that the strong ought to bear with the scruples of those who are weak in faith, he's not saying that we should merely put up with one another. No, when he talks about bearing with others, he is using Christ-like language, reminding us to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. One commentator says that what Paul is exhorting the strong to do is willingly and lovingly to assume for themselves the burden that these weak believers are carrying. This does not mean that the strong should adopt the scruples of the weak, but what it does mean is that they are sympathetically to enter into their attitudes, refrain from criticizing and judging them, and do what love would require toward them. Now, the reason Paul commands this is so that the strong might edify or build up the weak. But Paul then supports this point by quoting Psalm 69.9. And he calls us to follow the example of our righteous judge who said, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, this reference, which the New Testament uses often in regard to Jesus' passion, his suffering, uh, it was puzzling to me. You know, why would Paul include this verse here? And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe he's implying that bearing the scruples of the weak would bring uh, reproach on the strong. Maybe the Gentiles and their, their family members or neighbors would say, what are you doing eating with the Jews? Or vice versa, maybe the Jewish Christians in eating with the Gentiles would get reproach from their, from their community. But I think Paul's main point is one of degree or extent. Jesus refused to please himself to the extent that he endured unjust reproach, mocking, scourging, and ultimately death. And if he refused to please himself for the Father's sake and for our salvation to the point of death, how can we refuse to lay down some of our rights, some of our privileges, some of our pleasures to build up our brothers and sisters? Now, I know having this kind of mindset isn't natural. Uh, in fact, the story I came across shows that uh, our inclination is usually quite the opposite. So a man from Berlin, Germany, took an unusual approach 
in trying to bring peace to his marriage. A local news source reported that the man was using an old air raid siren to stun his wife into submission. My wife never lets me get a word in edgeways, the man identified as Vladimir R. told the police, so I crank up the siren and let it rip for a few minutes. It works every time, and afterwards it's real quiet again. The 73-year-old man's 220-volt rooftop siren was confiscated by the police after neighbors filed complaints. As for his wife of 32 years, she said, my husband is a stubborn mule, so I have to get loud. And I think that's pretty typical. Maybe not that extreme, but, you know, we love to, to have the last word. We love to be right. You know, we love to win the argument. But because we're loved and accepted in Christ, we don't have to have that last word. We don't always have to win. A lot of times we can just let smaller things go uh, for the sake of church unity. And this is because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Amen? We can talk out matters of opinion, uh, reason with each other, and even debate. But at the end of the day, if the matter at hand isn't a gospel issue, we should extend grace to each other. Now, I'm not a vegetarian, but if my eating meat offends you, uh, then I'll go for a shiitake mushroom burger. Sure, you know, bring out the veggie kebabs and the black bean burgers. Uh, let, let's, let's eat together and let's enjoy that. Or maybe I'm re- in recovery from alcoholism, and so we only have non-alcoholic beverages when we're together to keep me from stumbling. I might not agree with some of your non-essential doctrinal convictions, and you may not agree with some of mine, but we can still fellowship and advance the kingdom of God together because Christ has already welcomed both of us, and so we must do the same. Let's move on uh, to verse 4. Paul digresses here a little bit, but he does have a point. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul is reminding us that God has not left us to do this work all on our own. He gave us the Scriptures uh, to, to help us endure and encourage us. And therefore, we must judge or decide for ourselves that Scripture is trustworthy and that we will obey God's word even when it's hard, holding fast to his promises. Uh, Pursuing church unity, after all, is hard work. And so how does Psalm 69 encourage us to persevere? Well, if we read further down in that psalm, um, we're not going to turn there now, but if we read further down to verses 30 through 36, we see the following. We read of the Messiah's ultimate vindication in verses 30 through 32. His suffering was not in vain. We are reminded in verse 33 that God answers the prayers of his people. And so we don't stop praying. And in verses 35 through 36, we see a glorious future for all the people of God, reminding us that the best is yet to come. Therefore, we have hope. We can keep pursuing church unity despite internal and external pressures on the church because God strengthens us through his spirit and his word. Back to Romans 15, uh, verse 5. Uh, Paul shifts his position now, and he comes alongside the church in spirit, as it were, and offers up a prayer wish. He says this. He prays this for them. He says, May the God of endurance and encourage, uh, encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, in verse 5, Paul uses a specific grammatical construction with regard to endurance and encouragement to show that it is God who produces both of them in us. And so God does not leave us on our own, but he produces these qualities in us through prayer, through fellowship, uh, through his spirit-breathed word, and through the example of his son. And so I'd like to stop here and ask, do we pray for unity like Paul does? Do we pray that we would have such harmony that we would glorify God with one voice? The Lord Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, uh, he prayed for our unity. In John 17, 20 through 21, he says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is my last point. We must judge or decide that God's glory is more important than pleasing ourselves. Verse 7 says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. To welcome someone in Paul's day meant this, to receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. And it can refer to one Christian receiving another, or of God, or of Christ accepting a believer. And you should, we should also note here that Paul's command to welcome one another is progressive. It has a sense of keep on welcoming one another. Don't stop. Because gospel unity takes perseverance. But if we continue to welcome and build up one another, we will bring glory to God, which is the goal of everything we do. And so what does it look like to welcome someone? I have some practical suggestions, although I'm sure you can come up with even better ones. Um, we can make room for new people. Uh, in a conversation or a circle of friends or a group that shares an interest or activity. We can introduce ourselves to people who are standing alone. Maybe you see someone you've never seen here at church uh, before. Go up and say hi. Uh, we can our, open our homes to single adults or maybe students who are away from family uh, for a meal. You invite them over for Thanksgiving or, you know, barbecues, things like that. Uh, we can offer a spare room to travelers for a few days. All of this takes effort, but if we notice lonely people and people on the outside, then we can establish a habit of hospitality, which is risky but rewarding. Jesus offers his welcome and peace to all, and so should we. We recently had a visitor uh, who wrote an article about us for the North American Baptist Organization. I don't know if you guys saw this on Facebook, uh, but Wayne Stapleton came out to visit us during Tapestry of Quail. Um, which also happened to be Pentecost Sunday, according to the church calendar. Uh, he wrote about Pastor Mark's desire to see Quail represent the surrounding community and about his efforts to make that happen. Uh, he said Pastor Mark taught on ethnic diversity, developed deliberate friendships with pastors of other ethnicities, and selected leaders that represented the local community. He also encouraged our ministry leaders in the development of tapestry and our GO projects, so that we might represent and advance the diversity of God's kingdom. The result is that we have become an example of what Stapleton says, and I'm going to quote him, Christ's redeeming power over the nations. And we've become this example through our joyful and loving community. Christ's redeeming power over the nations. I mean, I love this statement because when you look in the Bible, you'll see that it's God's plan to bring together all nations and all peoples under Christ. And this, this plan is coming, is coming to pass. 
and one day it will be complete. Everything will be under Christ. And we, through our unity, are showing a living example of what that's going to look like. God is glorified in our unity. And when unbelievers see this in an increasingly divided society, they have to stop and wonder about our Jesus. They have to ask, what is drawing them together? And so I'm thankful uh, for what we're able to do here. But let's not stop there. There's still much more to do, both personally and corporately. And with respect to encouragement in this work, we have a vision from God in Revelation 7 to help us persevere and stay on track, beginning at verse 9. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And this is John the Apostle speaking. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the church God the Father is working to build. And so let's join him in this work by judging rightly edifying and welcoming one another warmly in imitation of his son through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the work that you're, you're doing here, Lord, in this church and that we get to display, Lord, to the watching world what you are doing in Christ, Lord. Um, we get to display what the church will, what it will look like someday in its full glory, Lord. And I pray that you will continue to help us do that more and more, Father. I pray that you will help us, Lord, to uh, lift one another up, Lord. That you will help us to edify one another, Lord. That you will help us, Lord, to be able to distinguish, Lord, between what's essential and what's not essential, Lord. So that we can come together and glorify you with one voice, Lord. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.